The Bain Free Radio Hour. All right, welcome, uh, Bain Free Radio Hour listeners. This is uh, DJ Dave Butler, and I'm here today with Paula Goodlett and Gorg Huff. Uh, and actually, I should have confirmed this before, but it, I am right to think it's Gorg, right? Yep. Okay, but all right, perfect. Just checking. Should have asked before, but I was pretty, I was confident. Uh, we're going to talk about an angel called Peter. There's Bill. a history of the, that. <laughs> okay, give me a minute. We'll start with the history of Gorg then. Yeah. Um, okay. the, uh, yeah. Gorg's name is actually George, but he was in school and they said, you have to have the E after the J or after the G to make it to George and Gord is dyslexic and he got pissed off so he made it Gord. <laughs> Sovereign citizen that's I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that decision. Uh, that's right you yeah. can do what you want to do with your own damn name. It's your own name. So the book is out now in uh, hardcover. Uh, it is also out in ebook, uh, wherever uh, ebooks are sold in all formats. Uh, always DRM free when you buy them uh, at bain.com, uh, of course. Uh, I've got a little biograph biography to read here. Gorg Huff is a Texas citizen who has enthusiastically helped in researching the 1632 series background, written numerous stories for the Grantville Gazette and contributed both maps and drawings to 1634, The Bavarian Crisis. Gorg began as a solo writer, but now principally teams with Paula Goodlett. Paula Goodlett retired from the military as a non-commissioned officer in the early 90s. She broke her leg in 2003, which led to her browsing Bain's bar, lest she become bored during her enforced inactivity. Uh, captivated by the 1632 universe concept, she began as a special assistant to Eric Flint. She eventually wrote a large, important sequence in the storyline of 1634, The Ram Rebellion. She was editor of the Grantville Gazette and chairs the 1632 editorial board. Additionally, Paula was assistant editor of the e-zine Jim Bain's Universe. Paula mainly writes in tandem with Gorg Huff. Paula and Gorg, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. So... Um, uh, Gorg mentioned before we before we we started actually Paula before you joined us we had a, a minute or two and uh, you both have quite a few writing credits am I right to think that yeah yeah so tell tell me a little bit about a little more expand on kind of your background as as writers here where where do you what else do you write uh, we we've got our we've got a couple of universes of our own we've got the War Spell multiverse in which a the magic of a role-playing game started working on earth and at the same time it got a connection with all the game worlds that that magic came from and so there are stories both centered on earth where now there are literally millions of people who can do magic and who have magical powers and but also on the game worlds where in each game world there's one or two people or a few people who have the memories and abilities of somebody from our world. So if you were a doctor, suddenly your character in role and in Warspell 
which is a role-playing game like that, Dungeons and Dragons or RuneQuest, suddenly mm. your character in that game now has your memories too. So they're now the qualified surgeon or an engineer or whatever you are, or an, an editor, an author, that whatever you do for a living, they've got your memories just like you got theirs. And that sets up multitudes of universes. I was just listening to a brand new um, audio book available on Amazon uh, uh, called Miss Midshipman Teasdale, which was one of our books that is just recent that Amazon has just recently put out as an audio book, and it is basically hornblow a female hornblower in a world with magic, and. Uh, Fairly early in the book, but not at, right at the beginning, another character, not Teasdale, gains the memories of a person from the merge world, on an engineer. And then they go on and do things. And T T uh, Teasdale, Miss Midshipman Teasdale, is actually the primary character all through the book, even though she's not the merge character. It's a fun, exciting uh, story. And I recommend it to everybody. We got like 30 books in that universe, and we've got a, got a space opera universe that's called Star Wings. That's got Pandora's Crew, which is also available as a new audio book. Um, Arachne's Webs, The Ram Rebellion, Metis's Wisdom. Those four books are in the Star Wings universe, which is basically space opera. It's uh, People going around in space and having adventures. And it's another fun one. Then there's another one that we did with Eric called the Demon Rift series. That's the Demons of Paris, the Demons of Constantinople, and uh, Demon Lord of Elysium, which is uh, uh, a fun, different a different look at that, that universe. But... There are, but we've got, and then of course there are the books that we did in Eric's uh, Shard universe. There's, aside from the 1632 books like, uh, like the whole Russia series and uh, including Sovereign States, which just came out in September, there is also an angel named Peterbilt and the Alexander Inheritance series. The Alexander Inheritance, which I tend to think of as the Queen of the Sea series, because it's about this cruise ship called the Queen of the Sea that gets dropped back into the world just a couple of years after Alexander the Great had died. And they're trying to keep his empire from collapsing. And mm. other adventures ensue. Yeah. Uh, we're on, we're, we're actually working on the fourth book in that series now. No fun. Now you bring up the Asidi Shards and the 1632 series. Now I suspect some people who listen to this interview will be very comfortable with, with those names and the relationship, but maybe maybe some will not. So why don't you tell us the relationship between 1632 and the Asidi Shards um, uh, for, for the benefit the, of the leaders? This, the, the Asidi Shards is the corporation that owns the 1632 universe is one uh, the, the way I it, that's sort of the way I think of it. Uh, Eric invented 1632, and almost as an afterthought, 
as sort of a way of explaining how he was doing it. He invented the Acidi shards, and he actually regretted telling people how it was telling people about the Acidi, which is a humanoid but non-human race from a different universe that was playing with space-time, and basically what happened to cause the 1632 universe was an accident. They were just being sloppy. It was industrial waste. Yeah. Um, and it picks up this town from the year 2000 in West Virginia and drops it in the middle of the 30 years war. And yeah. that was going to be just a one-off book for Eric. And then it grew. And Eric, being very, very bright, let it grow. He didn't get greedy. He didn't get mean spirit about it he shared it he let other people in he gave paula her start he gave me my start he gave he gave over a hundred really talented authors their start in writing and in so doing he got like 50 or 60 books not including the grantville gazette of which there are over 100 issues or the new uh, Grantville Gazette beyond 1630, 1632 and beyond, of which is just starting up and seems to be doing quite well. It created this whole universe of characters and interesting relationships and a lot of really fun reading. Yeah. Then, once that was set up, he expanded again and went out to the Asidi Shards. So the first was the time spike in which he sent a whole bunch of people from different times back to the stone age. no back back to the dinosaur age and then the second was the alexander inheritance which paul and i did that was a cruise ship back to the uh seventh back back to the fourth century bce just after alexander the great died then there was another one called, uh, I think, Atlantic Crossing, and I'm not really honestly all that familiar with that one. It's another new chart. And then there's Peterbilt. Peterbilt was the last thing that Eric did before he passed away. And it was the and the idea was that a Peterbilt, a modern hey, hold on. Peterbilt. Hold on. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Let me let me just let me take a stab at re-articulating what you said. Okay. Yeah. So the Asidi shards are a fictional mechanism that yeah. cause people or um, really it's groups is what it yeah. tends to be, to be displaced in time. Um, in fact, is what I have always seen is they're displaced in time into the past. Yeah. Um, and so 1632 was first a book and then a whole series of books, which you can... I I think all of them, you can tell them all because they start with the date, 1633, uh, actually, yep, this that's, that. that's half true. Uh, all the ones that Bain published start with 1632, but as a way of distinguishing the ones that were six that were Ring of Fire books that okay. in the 1632 universe that weren't published by Bain, they those books are published without the 16 without the date without the number. Okay. So, uh, for instance, Bartley's Man, which was one of ours, published by Ring of Fire Press, uh, doesn't have the 1630 the odd date on it, and neither do any of the Miroslava Holmes stories, which okay. are also in the 1632 universe. Okay, fair enough. 
1632 is one large series that follows all the consequences of what happens when this West Virginia town from the year 2000 reappears in the year 1632 in the middle of the 30 years war. Yeah. There are other books and other series that are a CD shards series um, that may be basically entirely self-contained. They may make no reference at all to 1632 or to other Asidi Shards stories, but they're in the larger universe in the sense that there's this idea that these right. these devices, these these uh, literary these literary devices, the things that make people go back well, in yeah, time, they, they, are hitting they, here and there. Right. So, like Kevin Eikenberry's book, The Crossing, is an example, right? It's not a 1632 novel, it, but it's in the larger universe. Uh, right. it's about some army um recruit yeah. who who find right. themselves with the Washington. American Revolution, yeah. So okay. So that's so uh and an angel called Peterbilt is in a CD Shards novel. Yeah. It's the it's the last one that Eric set up and he started it out as a short story to go with that across the Atlantic book that uh um, but that one grew into a whole novel. So Tony told Eric that she wanted uh, the um, Peterbilt story to expand it into a whole novel. I'd already been helping him on it with a few things, but then when she wanted it as a whole novel, he asked Paul and I to come in and, and help him with it because by that time he was getting kind of sick. And so we did that. And then he passed away while we were working on it. Then we had to go finish um, Sovereign States and come back and finish Peterbilt. So how, but, so how did that process? How did that process work? Um, we don't usually explore writing process very much, but this is interesting. This is maybe may arguably Eric's last novel. So did he just hand you a short story and say this needs to be expanded, or did he work out an outline with you, or, or what happened? Okay, um, it was. All right. Normally with us, what he would do is we'd talk about what we wanted in the book and then Paul and I would write it. He'd say, tell us any changes he wanted. And then that was it. Uh, and that, that's how it worked. In this one, it was already he already had the short stories. He was sick by then and I was visiting him in the hospital a lot. So we would sit and we would talk about what was going on in Peterbilt how it was working and trying to get his computer to work, which never happened in the hospital because he could never get it to work while he was there. Um, but we worked out how it was going to go. Originally, the short story was going to end with, I'm horrible with names. I create people and then I forget their names. Uh, this the, the, guy, the husband uh, who arrives later uh, mm. should... I'm snurking here. I'm snurking the plot. Is that a problem? That's all right. Yeah, yeah it's not a problem. Okay. Uh, the guy who, uh, the husband who gets sent back in time by humans uh, and arrives. That's not Roger, is it? No, it's Peter something, is it? Paula, do you remember? I uh, was the husband. Hello. Uh -huh. What? It's all right. It's all right. Keep going. No, no I don't remember his name, but I remember we. We wrote him in. The thing was, they needed more knowledge. So he came with 
a huge amount of knowledge in a mega computer of some sort so that they could do what they wanted to do. And I love Peterbilt. It's, I think it's my favorite book we've ever written um, because it, the people won. You know, the, the, the bad guys died and the people who came in won everything so yeah but that's just me i think his name was jerry. i love that book that jerry jerry yeah. jerry okay um the idea yes. the original idea was that the the first that the the book the short story was going to end with jerry dying with jerry arriving oh with uh, jerry would arrive and that would be like the end of the book uh the end of the story and that was like a about 30,000 words, 30 to 40,000 words. And Eric had written most of that up until Jerry. And then, okay, uh, Tony wants it expanded into a whole novel. So what happens after Jerry? <laughs> and then Paul and Eric and I would sit down and we would work that out. And we worked and we talked about it. And we talked about what Eric, uh, what Jerry would be able to bring with him. And the, the answer to that, remember, this this wasn't Jerry from coming back from our time, because the way Eric had set this up, it took it took them like 25 years of research and development and time passing to go from the world uh, that Peterbilt had left that the Peterbilt had left in the shard to the world that Jerry uh, Jerry left when he was was sent back in the capsule. So 25 years of technological advances. Jerry didn't come from our time. Jerry came from like 2080. Right. It's not really her husband in a sense. It's her future husband. She's only aged. This is Alyssa. We yeah. should set these characters up here in a minute. She's only aged a few months, as I recall. Yeah, a bit over a year. Yeah. So uh, interesting. Okay, so... Um, I don't want to dwell too long on this, but but did he just hand it over and say, "Go, this needs to be one hundred and twenty thousand words," and you, and you just kept going with the story? Then no, no. Uh, like I said, we were talking about it right up to the time Eric died. We were talking about how it would work. Now Eric always trusted us to write, but the plot outline of what was going to happen had already been built. And then when Eric passed, we finished it. Uh, basically, according to his instructions, according to what he wanted. Uh, actually, Alexander Inheritance is more our book than Peterbilt. Not that, and I'm not diminishing what we did in Peterbilt. We probably wrote out, out of the like 120,000, I don't know how how long Peter built this. We wrote all but about thirty thousand words, thirty to forty thousand words of it. But it was Eric's baby, and we wrote it basically because Eric said, "Finish this for me." And he did, but it wasn't finish this for me. However, you want to do it, it was finish this for me in this particular way because mm -hmm. this is the story I want to tell. 
And that's the story we wrote. To the extent that we could, you know. Yeah. Well, let's well let's go back and talk about the setup of the story. Obviously, there's a truck in it. So yeah. yeah. So we okay. we start with the with the truck and the family in the truck. So tell us about these people. And there are three of them. There's a mother, there's the mother and father truck drivers, yeah. and their 12-year-old daughter, who uh basically is do summer vacationing with her parents on the road, right? Yeah. Uh, in the winters, she lives with her grandparents, but they're summer, but but it's summertime, so they're vacationing. They're uh, approached by a scientist who's studying the shards, which have been happening here and there around the world at various times and places, and they're being investigated. But they're also, but the information about them is also being suppressed. So there's this big political hoo-ha-ha that never really comes into the book very much. Mm -hmm. uh, but um, they get they get the truck drivers to uh, put a device on the back of their truck to hopefully to measure the, the next shard that hits Earth, right? And they've got several trucks that are carrying these things. And the idea is that a shard will hit and there'll be trucks all over the place and they'll get like an image of it and be able to judge it. And then the shard, a shard hits, but it grabs the truck. So all of a sudden they've got this detection unit sent back in time with them and they start to study the readouts. Yeah. And the readouts advance on a day-to-day -day basis. Um and uh, that sets them on the course to building, that gives them the information that they need to build their own time transfer device, their own shard maker. Yeah. Uh, but in the meantime, those three people meet three more people. Yeah, so we get, we get Melanie and Michael Anderley, Shane is their daughter. Yeah. Right? Uh, and they're in the truck, and the truck is carrying oil, right? Crude, crude oil, I think. Crude oil and gasoline. It's and a, gasoline. a separated uh, tanker truck. Okay. Uh, it's got a crude oil tank and a gasoline tank. Yeah, and I, I envision is like there's like there's a bubble, and the bubble grabs the entire truck, yep. but it also grabs. Uh, I can't okay. remember if they're parked or they're passing by a gas station. Yeah. Grabs uh -huh. like half the gas station with three living people and a pair of legs. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the, the people shooting these shards aren't all that careful of cat collateral damage. Um, but yeah, it grabs a, a, about half the this basically country store. Uh, and there's a car, there are cars in the parking lot and there's uh, a, a woman who has two uh, kids, four and six, wasn't it, Paula? Or six and eight? Four and I six. I think so. Yeah, yeah, four and six, and they became, and the, by the time their dad arrives, they're six and eight. But. Um, and, and her name is Alyssa Jefferson, right? And so she's got. Alyssa Jefferson. Kids. She's the nerd. Yeah. She's a chemistry professor well a young chemistry professor 
professor. She's like 30. Yeah. And, uh, but she's got her PhD in chemistry. And she's one of these, um, she's basically a Renaissance person. She's one of these people that knows quite a bit about a lot of stuff, as well as a phenomenal about uh, amount about her specific field, which is chemistry and uh, chemical engineering, actually. Uh, so she knows how to make black powder. She knows how to make napalm out of oil, out of oil and styrofoam. She knows what chemicals are going to mix with what. She knows how to make fertilizer. She knows how to make all sorts of yeah. stuff. And she's also got general knowledge to the extent that early on in the book, and this is a part that Eric wrote, uh, the truck driver starts making fun of her for knowing everything. And um, basically gets a little bit annoying about it, but they they get along. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So um, they're all grabbed together. Yeah. Uh, and like literally it's half the building and the unfortunate, I guess we think it's the proprietor is like. No, actually the guy who died. Or it's the guy in a pickup truck. Who yeah, was, he had yeah. a pickup truck and he was out yeah. on the park. He had walked over to the. Um, That's right. Because there's a part uh, of a truck there too. Yeah. Because now he had walked over to a. Um, yeah, there was a whole truck there. Uh, it was part of her car that got cut in half. Yeah. It was, uh, but he had walked over to a dumpster to dump out some trash, and he was uh, walking back to his car when the shard hit, and it yeah. cut off, cut him in half, basically right down the middle. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, bad luck. One step, one way or the other, he would have been fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. One so, side, one time, went the other side, and the other time, it's. And yeah. it's hard to walk that way. So so they, they find themselves in, uh, they go back in time a thousand years, basically. Yeah. They go back about, during, about uh, the, the during the early, uh, well, early to just starting into the mid period of the mound builders. Um, and I'm sorry if that's not the proper way you're supposed to say it. The middle... Uh, the uh, Mississippi culture, Mississippian culture. So we're talking about the Mississippi and the and the Hopewell, right? The right who who built the um, right. The thing is, we don't know. Cultures, we don't know how much. We don't know that much about that culture. It's it's archaeological rather than um, historical, in that there aren't a lot of written records. I don't think there are actually any. So. Yeah. Basically, between us, Eric and I, we built, we made up their culture. Yeah. And what we did was we made up a culture in, in transition. Yeah. The leaders of the city of the mound were a patriarchal society, but the tribal groups, the farming families around the mound were more ma a matrilineal. They weren't matriarchal. There's very been, been very few actually matriarchal societies in the history of the world, but they were matrilineal, which made for a different culture, different culture. They sure. uh, they ran inheritance to the female line rather than the male line. Sure. And but 
it gave the women a lot more power and eliminated some of the stuff that the patriarchy was doing and the human sacrifice had was start getting started now we know that there actually was human fact sacrifice among the bound people we that's been confirmed archaeologically pretty thoroughly uh so that came up in the book but it was yeah it's been confirmed with it that it was mostly young women yeah. just don't get me started <laughs> so you guys had to create a culture that was broadly consistent with what is known which yeah. as you say is relatively little because they left these huge monuments but of course americans as they came west in the 18th and 19th centuries didn't have Pretty a whole lot of use for the monuments so they they yeah. would they would you know they would take the stones and the timbers and reuse them or they would you know yeah. them under to actually use yeah them. that uh, there was a religious or a catholic religious order that set up housekeeping on top, the top of the biggest mound there. there there's a mound called monk's mound because yeah. uh, there was a i can't remember what what order yeah, was set up on there yeah and if people there there are a lot of there's america actually has um thousands of these but yeah, a, a big prominent example is East St. Louis, Illinois, just right across the river from, from right. St. Louis. Right, and, and that's the, that's the, the one court. we used. That's yeah. the one we used as the capital. Yeah, and, you, and that's, you, you, because you, that's that's the earliest one archaeologically. The later ones, the ones that are that farther down the Mississippi and uh, across the Gulf Coast, those actually came a little bit later. Yeah, this one was. Uh, had its heyday around 2000 and apparently the culture sort of spread south and central and but died out where it started and we're not nobody really knows why yeah so, so there's a big there there so there was circa 1000 ad um yeah. a metropolis now it wouldn't look like new york i, I don't know no, what no, it was, are, but it's it's a few thousands or maybe it's tens of thousands few, but it's not yeah near. yeah 10 to twenty thousand. Yeah, Roughly. so you're talking about you would call it a town now, but it would have been a huge. Yeah, it was city. a massive city then. Yeah, especially yeah. for North America and South America, they had some places that were larger. Right. But uh, in North America, it was yeah, that it was huge. So uh, the, the Asidi shards don't move them geographically; they push them back a thousand years. Uh, actually, most of the CD shirts do move them ge geographically. This one was a little bit of an outlier in mm. that basically they ended up in approximately the same place they'd left okay. uh, just a thousand years earlier. Uh, but the cruise ship went from the Bahamas to uh, left the Bahamas and arrived in the Mediterranean. Uh, Grantville left West Virginia and arrived in Germany. Sure. Sure. Uh, let me see. And I don't know about the I don't yeah. know about the the crossing Atlantic one. Uh, I yeah. do, let's see Fort Dix, New Jersey. So I think it's approximately the same place, right? I think they right. land near the same place anyway. So apparently there are two. Oh, and yeah, and uh, actually the thing about the time spike one is it goes back so back so far back in time that the continents have moved. Yeah. So, so it's interesting because all, all of these books that, that I have read, which is um, a small minority, 
Okay, I've read I read a few Asidi shards or sixteen thirty two yeah. books. Um, th there is a an element of a thought experiment about them, right? Yeah, what, they're what all effectively counterfactuals. Remember, Eric was a was a had a had a well was working on a PhD in uh, history. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so you get questions like, uh, well, I mean, the question here, right, there are various questions. One, one question is, uh, okay, you have a you have one tanker truck of half crude oil, half gas, uh, a pretty good set of uh, sort of scientific knowledge, um, and a Glock, uh, <laughs> and a, a Peterbilt truck, right? Yeah. What do you do? That That's part of the thought experiment. Uh, there are no roads, um, or at least there are no roads built to to, right. you know, to modern standards. Road. Right? Yeah, right. there are effectively no roads. There are trails. Yeah. Effectively no roads. There, um, but but like another. So there's a there's a thought experiment um, from that point of view. There's another thought experiment from the point of view of like the natives, right? Yeah. Like what what's it going to do? And again, there isn't. There is a. How's it going to affect their culture, and how are they going to affect the people who move there? Right. And this is an experiment. I mean, you guys, you guys have, have essentially had to um, um, reconstruct the sort of hypothetical cultures, right? Based on yeah. what we know, here's here's a kind of culture that maybe we're dealing with, right? Right. right. Um, so, but also these open up. Uh, this premise opens up the path to quite a bit of adventure, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, it's, oh, it's yeah. It's, it's, these are, yeah. First and foremost, these are fun books to read. Yeah, that they're they're fun books to write and they're fun books to read. They tell fun stories. Now you can you'll you'll find yourself learning stuff from them. Yeah, but mo but they're they're not written at they're they're not textbooks. These are for 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 reading for fun, and they are fun. They're uh, you got the good guys, you got the bad guys. You got how they're going to win or whether they're going to win, and it's yeah we 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 do we do fun stuff. Yeah, so tell me so tell me about some of those adventures. I mean, what um, you know what um, uh, what kind of things uh, do the Anderleys get up to? What are some of the challenges they face? Um, what are some of the assets buildings that to provide? Yeah, partly it's buildings. Uh, the truck, the 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 oil provides electricity through the Peterville. It mm. provides uh, it provides oil and gasoline for the other truck, which they use to plow fields, among other things. But if you think about it, there were no draft animals in America in North America at this time. There were no cattle. There were no horses. There. People, if you wanted a field plowed, you went out and you hoed it by hand. But with the Peterbilt and building uh, a plow that you could pull behind uh, the truck that came with them, uh, you could plow like a hundred acres that would that you couldn't. You could even plow land that said they simply couldn't plow before because you could cut through roots and stuff like that. They also built stuff like houses and water purification systems. They taught, they learned about um, treating corn 
so that it wouldn't cause an, uh, a deficiency disorder, uh, so that it, all its nutrients would get through. That was one of the things that um, the chemist figured out. And uh, they taught, uh, actually, uh, then, then there were the weapons. Uh, they taught, uh, they, they improved the weapons. They improved the boats. They made uh, lighter, faster canoes, which allowed for more transit up and down the river. They, um, but more even than the physical stuff, the primary thing they did, the primary thing that the people, that the Peterbilt people provided and they provided this partly through the musical uh, Jesus Christ Superstar <laughs> and partly through their knowledge and just who they were. They provided a matrix and a network for the locals to develop a, I, they provided a how-to on how to build an, a culture that could expand for a lot that could include a lot of people and still give people rights because what had happened before is that the local the smaller tribes were being subsumed by this culture that dominated and had its power over the others by domination and by threat of uh murder yeah. basically it was it's a, it was a mob mentality and they what they taught really was the idea of self-government or, or the technical technology of self-government to the natives yeah because it, you can it's it's one thing to govern yourselves as a single tribe or a single family but if you've got hundreds of different tribes and hundreds of different people it's a whole different process you need elections. You need ways of deciding things. Yeah. And that as much or more than the technical technological tools was what they provided and what allowed the basically matriarchal, matrilineal society uh, of the outlying villages to uh, fight back against the increasingly oppressive central central government it's interesting i again i've only read a small number i think it might literally be five yeah these shards books and that's a small number um yeah. it seems to me like one this is one of the themes is like uh what what are the potentially explosive impacts of enlightenment ideas about liberty or government um if we if we as an experiment say what if they these were accepted by peter the great or what if they were injected yeah. into a faction of the you know right. uh, uh, the people living in the ohio valley in the year 1000 or yeah. or whatever yeah um it's very very it's very interesting so i uh so so okay so they they the Anderleys. And Alyssa Jefferson basically become integrated with these the matrilineal people, right? Who are yeah. who are sort of 
Am I right to think of it, to remember that basically the mounds are sort of in control of the patriarch or patriarchal right. sacrifice? Or they're controlled by, yeah, they're, they're controlled by a royalty that had moved into the area. Yeah. And, and taken over. Yeah. And the mounds were, the mounds, the way we wrote it, we don't actually know if this is what happened. And yeah. so please do not hang me uh in effigy <laughs> when you find out that our guess about what happened turned out to be wrong sure but our guess was that the mound builders that the that the mounds were built almost as an exercise of power over the other tribes by forcing them to send people to work on the mounds by uh and as a means of proving power dominance and control they were uh, massive projects introduced by the government to prove the government was strong. And uh, they, the government of the mound were not particularly nice people, certainly not by modern standards. Uh, but they ought to, but they too thought they were in the right. Um, and which, which is sort of the the dirty little secret of tyrannies all over all through history is they almost always thought they were the good guys. Sure, everyone everyone does, right? Yeah. Does. But so, so we end up in war. I mean, we get exploration. We get sort of. Yeah, so did the Nazis? Point. Yeah, the Nazis did. Yeah. Sure, they all they have a cause, right? They think they're fighting the the communists. Uh, thought yeah. they were on the right side of history, right? Yeah. So um, uh, we, we get we get exploration for oil as the oil starts running out. You know, eventually, right. it's a year from Melissa's perspective, but from Jerry's perspective, twenty five years, and he's with the sort of people who are who are right. uh, sort of conducting he's, CD shards he's operation. The public face uh, to justify the in, the investment in this project to learn how yeah. to send back into the tat into the yeah. past and he's you know and that's that's his profession he's a salesman yeah and, uh, he, and he shows up eventually with like encyclopedias and other sorts of things massive accelerate this process and yeah. we end up in war right we end up in a war and so yep. one of the fun questions is you know what good is a peterbilt when <laughs> to um otherwise technologically stone age cultures Right, yeah. uh, basically, uh, be pretty useful. Go to war, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, what a lot of fun. Um, it, now, am I uh, am I right to think it ends in a way that it's open to possible? Solutions? Oh yeah, there I, I there are three major ones. First, uh, the their encounter with the Central American cultures. Second, their encounter with the Norsemen in uh, Northeast America, Greenland, and Iceland. Okay. Uh, they're going to want to do that to get animals for, uh, because, you know, they can, animals are probably going to have a much, uh, animals like uh, horses and cattle are probably going to have a much shorter span as work animals, because these people already have the technology to start getting into steam, and they're probably going to have steam by the time they get horses. So 
they're going to use horses, but they're not going to be as, as vital. And they're not going to be shipped in with the gay abandon that happened in our timeline. Yeah. Uh, but then there's also the third book, the third stretch out of this would be the actual contact with Europe and Asia. Mm. And that could be... Uh, and by the time they're doing that, they're going to be, they're going to arrive in 13th century, well, probably 10th, 11th century, uh, yeah, I don't, um, around, they're going to, sometime around, okay, they arrived in, in the year 1005, mm. and it's going to take them, oh, around 20 years, around 20 years, so around 1,000, 25 somewhere around in there they're going to hit europe in steamships mm. that's a lot of fun yeah that's so that's going to be that's going to be a lot of fun well well uh how exciting what um what have we not talked about and paula in particular i want to address this question to you i want to make sure that uh if there's anything you think that we should say about the book that we haven't, um, that we take the time now and do that. What 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 have we not talked about but should? No, I actually think we have done everything that that Gorg and I wanted. It it's simply that you know it's fiction and you have to go with the flow and. Uh, we would really like to write more in the Peterbilt universe, but also we are in the middle of <laughs> what we are calling Bring Me the Head of Antigonus One Eye. That, that's just our Eric, that, uh, that's what uh, Eric wanted to call it because just uh, for the fun of it. But he knew it was, I'm would never quite fly. sure somebody else would prefer something else than that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, but it's, it's, you'll come but, back to the Peterbilt. Yeah. Yeah. We really need to kill that goddamn, excuse me, we need to kill that story and you know we need to get it done yeah yeah well uh fantastic uh the uh book again is an angel called peterbilt uh by uh, paula goodlett gorghoff and eric flint arguably uh his last book it's out now in hard cover and uh pretty much his last book we had like a an outline of sorts, but but Eric died. So yeah, yep. Well, Paula Gorg, thank you both. I miss uh, Eric very much. Really bad. Yeah, me too. He was a friend. He was our friend. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you both. Uh, I think that's a good note to end on. Uh, thank you both, and uh, and thank you to Eric.
And now we bring you our audiobook serialization of Tinker by Wynn Spencer. Inventor girl genius Tinker lives in a near-future Pittsburgh, which now exists mostly in the land of the elves. She runs her salvage business, pays her taxes, and tries to keep the local ambient level of magic down with gadgets of her own design. When a pack of wargs chase an elven noble into her scrapyard, life as she knows it takes a serious detour. Tinker finds herself taking on the Elven Court, the NSA, the Elven Interdimensional Agency, technology smugglers, and a college-minded xenobiologist as she tries to stay focused on what's really important, her first date. Armed with an intelligence the size of a planet, steel-toed boots, and a junkyard dog attitude, Tinker is ready to kick butt to get her first kiss. Chapter 8 Redefining Self Oil Can called out, Tinker, are you here? As he came through the door and then checked at the sight of angry storm horse, flustered Nathan, and Tinker in a towel. The sight of Oil Can destroyed all control Tinker had, and she went to him, suddenly crying. Her cousin held her without asking questions, and the males regarded each other in tense silence. I think it's time for you to go. Oil Can said quietly, and Nathan left without another word. Stormhorse's hand rode his hilt, and he eyed Oil Can with open suspicion. Nagaro. Oil Can identified himself as a sister son of Tinker's father. His elvish had always been better than hers. He and Stormhorse launched into a high elvish discussion, faster than she could follow, which ended with Stormhorse bowing and letting himself out of the loft and then Oil Can held her until she wept herself out. Then, in fits and starts, mostly from editing out what she didn't want him to know, she told him about Windwolf and Nathan. Look at me. I'm shaking so bad. If you haven't eaten anything for three days, then you're probably weaker than you think. Stormhorse went to get you something to eat. He did? She got up. Where would he get anything this time of night? I don't know. Why don't you get dressed before he comes back? So she went back to her bedroom to dress. She found herself pawing through her underwear drawer, looking for the plainest pair of panties she owned. She stopped herself, picked a pair randomly off the top, and pulled them on. Clean jeans, a t-shirt, socks, and then her boots. She stomped around, feeling more like herself. Oil Can had cleared her kitchen table, wiped it clean, and was washing her a few pots and dishes. She got a clean towel and started to dry. How long do you think it will take him to get back? The sweep of headlights through her loft announced Pony's return. Not long, Oil Can said dryly. She smacked him with a towel and went to open the door. Pony came in carrying stacked wicker baskets, wreathed in the perfume of heavenly-smelling food. Setting the baskets lightly on her table, he undid the lid and lifted it off to reveal noodle soup in the hand-painted bowl of an enclave restaurant. I didn't think enclaves did take out, Tinker sat down on the footstool, leaving her two battered and mismatched chairs for the males. I persuaded them to do this one time. Pony sat the noodle soup in front of her. It would be best if you eat this first. Why this? The noodles were long as spaghetti, but nearly as thick as her pinky, and had a slightly waxy appearance. After her experience with the beer, she eyed the soup with suspicion. 
Rich foods on an empty system might upset your stomach, and you need to eat as much as possible. This has very little fat. Oil Can found her spoon, and she tried the stock. It was Keva bean paste mixed with hot water, simple but delicious. She had to fight to get the noodles into her mouth. Despite their looks, they were mild but good. I told them of your Nagaro, and they sent enough to share. Pony unlocked the top basket and lifted it off, exposing the next level of food, steamed meat dumplings. Mazowin, you can count me in. Oil Can fetched plates and silverware, got himself a beer from the refrigerator, and settled at one of the chairs. Pony unloaded the rest of the baskets but remained standing. Why don't you sit? Oil Can paused in sharing out the Mazowin to three plates. I am Tinker Domi's guard. I should stand. Sit, Tinker snapped. Pony wavered a moment, then pulled out a chair and sat unhappily. This isn't proper. Currently, I'm too peeved to care, Tinker snapped. Wise man that he was, Oil Can set a dish of Mazowin in front of Pony without comment. With Pony on the other side of the table and food in her hands, Tinker could study him now at leisure. While pretty as all elves tended to be, he was by far the most solid of elves she'd ever seen. He wore wyvern armor, harvested from a beast that ran to the dark blues, with an underlining of black leather to keep the sharp edges of the overlapping scales from cutting him, since they themselves couldn't be dulled. The armor left his arms bare from the shoulders. Permanent protection spells were tattooed down his arms like Celtic knots. For reasons she thought were no more than artistic, the spells were done in graded shades of cobalt. They shifted with the play of his muscles. Unlike most elves she knew, who wore dazzling jewelry, from complex dangling earrings to rings, Pony's only decoration was dark blue beads woven into his black hair. While previously it had seemed to Tinker impossible to judge an elf's age, Pony struck her as young, but she couldn't tell if that was from some hint in his face or just his manner. He fairly bristled with weapons, a longsword strapped to his back, a pistol riding his hip, and knife hilts peeking out of various locations. Still, he met her gaze with a look that shifted from open honesty to slight embarrassment to bewildered confusion and back around again. Where is Windwolf? Oilcan asked as Tinker ate her soup and studied Pony. A message came from Almrenau. Pony glanced at them to see if they understood. Almrenau was the name of the palace on Elfholm in roughly the same place as the Palisades were on Earth, overlooking the Hudson River near New York City. His presence was requested by Queen Soulful Ember. He couldn't refuse the summons. He had to go. He wished to leave Sparrow to care for you. She's quite fluent in Tanianante, the elvish for those many human languages, and Pizzabavante. The queen, however, requested her appearance specifically along with Windwolf's. The queen is in the Western lands? Oilcan asked. It is very unexpected. She has not been here since the treaty signing, Pony said. He wished to bring Tinker Domi with him, but he didn't want to take her so far away without consulting her first. That would have pissed her off proper, but at least it would have saved her from Nathan being a jerk. How did Windwolf change me? I, I do not really know, honestly. Pony screwed up his face, and Tinker suddenly liked the sturdy dark elf. 
I am only of the Sakasha caste, and still considered young. The Domana understand the great transformation spells. Windwolf took blood samples while you slept. By the old reckoning, you're genetically Domana caste now. She shivered. What do you mean by the old reckoning? There was a time when clan leaders often transformed their most trusted followers to Domana caste. They were then considered full equals by the rest of the caste. And now? Pony touched his own forehead where Tinker bore Windwolf's mark. There is the Tao. Which Maynard said elevated her to Windwolf's caste. When is Windwolf coming back? Oilcan asked. He couldn't say, Pony said. But if he can't return soon, he might choose to send for Tinker Domi. Seeing the look on her face, Pony added, if she wishes to join him. Unfortunately, all the wonderful food meant lots of delicate dishes to be cleaned. Still, with all three of them washing and drying, the work went quickly. Pony, however, made no sign of leaving. Shouldn't you go back to the lodge? Windwolf told me to guard over you. I can't do that at the lodge. So you plan to stay with me until Windwolf comes back to say otherwise? Yes. Oh, great. Tinker saw the look on Oilcan's face. What? You're sleeping at my place tonight, Oilcan said in English. I wasn't crazy about you being alone, but him here too? I'd feel better being close. Then stay the night. You only have your bed and the couch. Oh, yes. Okay. She sighed and yawned. Your place... That was another installment in Wind Spencer's Tinker, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks as always to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.